0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Headlines have been made recently by proposed changes to the Treasure Act in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, which would see more historical and archaeological artefacts defined as treasure and could help museums to acquire more important items. Lord Parkinson is a British Conservative member of the House of Lords, who currently serves as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Arts and Heritage in the UK. He spoke to Matt Elton about the thinking behind the proposals and some of the issues facing heritage in the UK.
3: So, I'm joined today by Lord Parkinson, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Arts and Heritage, to talk through um, some of the recent developments, I suppose, in the heritage sector. First of all, we should talk about the changes um, to the Treasure Act here uh, in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and we'll get on to the specifics in a minute. For people who might not have heard, what's changed and what does it mean?
4: Well, the Treasure Act has been uh, around for uh, just over 25 years. We celebrated its 25th uh, anniversary last year. I love an anniversary uh, as Heritage Minister. Um, And in that time, it has saved hundreds of objects for uh, museums and public collections around the country. But the definition is quite specific at the moment of what constitutes treasure. Items have to be a precious metal and they have to be over 300 years old. And that means that some items, uh, like the Roman helmet that was found in Crosby Garrett in Cumbria, uh, which are made of other metals, um, fall through the net. And we want to make sure there's been such an increase in metal detecting, thanks, you know, to TV programmes and the great coverage that people's discoveries always get. We want to make sure that the items that people find, you know, are, are covered by that definition so that they can be saved for museums and collections around the country. So we are changing or proposing to change the uh, the definition. We've laid it before Parliament and both houses will have the chance to say whether they agree. But our proposal is to bring it down to 200 years, Uh, to say that items could be made of any type of metal, but also to bring in a new significance test. So if an item is significant because it sheds particular light on an individual or a particular event from the past, uh, then uh, it could be saved that way. And one of the lovely things about the treasure process is often items end up in museums or collections very close to where they were found, um, which means that the people that found them, you know, can be part of Uh, That story, and you know, see it proudly on display, uh, inspiring people in their hometowns and villages. So one of the the
3: hopes for this change, this kind of proposed change, is that uh, artifacts will end up in museums rather than in private collections. Is is that right?
4: That's right. Yes. At the moment, you know, if if they don't meet the criteria, then they can be sold on the open market. And sometimes private collectors very generously lend items to museums, but there's no, you know, automatic um, uh, process for that happening. If they're defined as treasure, then museums get um, the opportunity to acquire them, and the, the people that find them and the, the landowners. Uh, are eligible for a reward so uh, they're compensated for the discovery they've made but they, they end up in a museum where they can inspire and educate people for generations to come.
3: Perhaps you can talk us through some of the reasons behind this proposed change. Is it something that people have been calling for, groups have been calling for?
4: Yes, we did a consultation on it. And as I say, there have been some cases like the Roman helmet at Crosby Garrett. Um, uh, I went to go uh, and visit uh, Chelmsford Museum. They've got a wonderful little Roman figurine there, the Birrus Britannicus. It's a, a native Briton Britain from the time of the Roman occupation wearing what, what they describe as a sort of a, an early duffel coat. He's wearing this, this cloak that tells you a lot about the weather in the UK at the time, the fashion, uh, the craftsmanship, but also the way that the Romans uh, were taken by us. They obviously wanted wanted to keep warm in the British Isles, but they exported that throughout the Roman Empire. Now that, again, was made of a base metal, so it didn't count as treasure. It was luckily saved through another mechanism, the export bar process. So it's ended up on public display only about two or three miles from where it was found in Essex. But we we want to make sure that items like that can definitely be covered uh, so that they can inspire people.
3: So the hope is by having a more comprehensive definition of what counts as treasure, local communities and I suppose the nations as a whole will have a greater understanding of their history through these artefacts.
4: Absolutely, yeah.
3: Um, at the start, I sort of specified that this was only parts of the UK. Can you just talk us through which parts it applies to, when it, if it goes through and which parts it doesn't and why not?
4: Uh, yes, this is separate in Scotland. There's a separate law there because the, the ancient uh, laws of treasure trove are aligned differently in, in Scotland uh, and predate the, the Treasure Act. So this is a, a change for uh, England and Wales. There's also a slightly different process, which is rather complicated for uh, Church of England land. But we, see, we think that the changes here will uh, mean hundreds of items a year being covered by the new definition. And of course, we'll see how the process goes and see whether there's a case for further widening it to other materials in due course. But we, we want to make sure that the, the scheme runs well at uh, the British Museum and, um, the uh, National Museum Wales uh, help us run the Portable Antiquities Scheme. They do that brilliantly. So we, we've got to make sure that the uh, they and the Treasure Valuation Committee who work out uh, how much items uh, are approximately are worth are able to continue processing the work as they've been brilliantly doing for the past quarter of a century.
3: Under the proposed changes, how will the decision-making process work in terms of what gets uh, labelled treasure. Who who will be involved in that process?
4: It's a coroner, um, again, for sort of historic reasons of treasure trove. So if an item is found, then a coroner determines whether it uh, is definition, uh, it, it, whether it counts as treasure under the definitions under the Treasure uh, Act. And if it is, then museums get first dibs on uh, acquiring it and the Treasure Valuation Committee meet and they work out the, the, the value and how the, the finder and the landowner on whose land it was found, how they can be recompensed for it and then work out how much uh, this, this needs to be sold at. Uh, often the items, are, you know, only a few hundred pounds, um, so easily acquired by local muse- museums, um, you know, they can be quite small, the, the, the value of the metal can be quite low, but the, the value, the uniqueness of these fascinating items is uh, you know really beyond financial compare.
3: And is the funding of these proposals a consideration? How will the money be sorted in terms of how this will work?
4: Well, that's for, for museums to, to fundraise and um, through their acquisition budgets. And uh, often there are you know private donors and grant making bodies and philanthropic uh, organisations who, who generously support the acquisition. And often because of the publicity that items get when they're, when they're found, it's a great part of the, you know, the fundraising and, and an enthusing of the local community to make sure that uh, museums are able to, to keep them.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
3: We're talking right at the start of March. For people who might not be aware of how this works in terms of the parliamentary process, what has to happen between now and these proposals' next step, I suppose?
4: Well, it's, it's secondary legislation, so we've laid it before Parliament. Parliament has the opportunity to have a debate on it in both houses if it wants. If the houses agree, then that becomes law under the Treasure Act. If Parliament wants to tweak it in any way, then they've got the opportunity. And uh, obviously, I'll be. Uh, at hand in the in the lords to debate it uh, if they they wish to but i think there's you know i've been speaking to people in both houses there's a uh, all party group for archaeology uh, I've been speaking to colleagues at the the, the British Museum and uh, some representatives of uh, metal detectorists. So I think there's, as I say, this follows the consultation that we did. We know that there's support for for the change. Uh, I know some people would like us to go even further and cover sort of wooden and terracotta items and so on. And we're, you know, we're open to see how that works um, and see how the act should be extended further in the future. But what we want to do is make these small but important changes about the age, the type of metal, and the significance test, which is is uh, probably the most important of the uh, the changes. And we think that'll uh, bring many more items in, but allow the, the process that's been working very well to continue.
3: So it's sort of uh, sounding out these changes and then potentially making more in the future yeah. if, if it goes well. Yeah. There was a report earlier this week that some museums are finding it difficult to be able to store or display the sheer volume of artefacts that they have in their collections. Do you have any sort of concerns about this adding to that sheer volume?
4: Well, yes. I mean, museums uh, have, you know, very often uh, what you see on display is only a fraction of their their collection. And some museums are limited in law from deaccessioning items. They have to hold on to them for a uh, future because, of course, the you know, questions of what is interesting change. You know, the items that, you know, often sort of put away in the storeroom. But then as we're sort of talking about neglected histories, they shed a, a new light. So it's, it's, it's important that they are they're held on to and that uh, curators are able to sort of bring them out. And lots of museums of course lend items that aren't on display uh, and that's really important you know uh, from you know our big uh, national institutions but small ones as well generously lend them on uh, a rotation around the UK and indeed around the world and you know we support that through indemnity and insurance to make sure you know items can be uh, transported, but you know we talk to museums. Obviously, we have a direct relationship with a, a handful of museums who are the, the national institutions um, who are arms-length bodies for the department, and so we talk to them about the uh, the storage space that they have. Uh, but we also have schemes like the the museums estates and development fund which and the dcms fund with uh, the wolfson foundation which help give grants to museums so that they can look at the the bricks and mortar of their buildings make sure that they're able to store things adequately but also make sure that their buildings are accessible that everybody can get in and and see them and often sometimes uh, solve that problem of 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 storage that is also display so that you don't have to sort of keep things away from the public eye when you're cataloguing them and archiving them and uh, and and keeping them for the future.
3: There's sometimes concern expressed in the archaeology sector that by focusing on the sort of monetary or financial value of these objects, it diverts attention away from their archaeological or historical worth. What would you say to those those concerns?
4: Yes, I mean, I, so I've, uh, twice now I've had the privilege of going to the uh, launch of the annual treasure report at the British University Museum, which is wonderful because you, you meet the people who found these objects and you, they, they talk about their incredible pride at being the first human being to set eyes on this for 2,000 years and, you know, it doesn't matter... You know how much it's worth. It just immediately takes you back to well, who who dropped this? Who lost it? You know this this item of jewelry, this piece of coin, this this clasp that was on somebody's cloak. It's um, you know, it it immediately conjures up images of uh, how this item you know came to be buried under the ground. So it's wonderful meeting the detectorists who've uh, who found them and seeing their pride at these items going on display. So yeah, sometimes they're lucky and they're also they have a financial worth. But I think people people aren't doing it. To make money they're doing it um for the discovery and the chance of, of being that you know lucky first human being to to hold this item
3: one of the sort of more dark sides of archaeology which i think emerged particularly during and after the pandemic lockdowns was night hawking which is when people sort of illegally often at night time go out with metal detectors and they find and keep um objects is has that been factored into this is is that a concern
4: yeah, well, I say the, the vast majority of treasure finds are made by metal detectorists, and the vast majority of metal detectorists know what the the law is. It's a it's a criminal offence not to report something that is treasure. So, uh, you know, there's there's a risk to people uh, in flouting uh, the law as well as it you know being the wrong thing to do. These these items you know are wonderful and should be shared with a wide audience. And lots of metal detectorists are part of clubs, which is great because that means that you know they're part of an, a support network of you know explaining how the, the scheme works. Understanding the Portable Antiquities Scheme and uh, knowing where to find your local finds liaison officer so you can report it. Uh, and so we're, we're grateful to all the detectorists who find things, report them, and you know then have the the pride at the end of the process of, of seeing them on display. And of course, they should get the credit. Museums often uh, like to tell the story of how things were found and who by. So it's, it's it's great that there's this you know enthusiasm uh, for people to get out there and uh, and help <laughs> discover the history that's below us all.
3: I mean, as as Heritage Minister, do you have a particular favourite heritage site or an aspect of history that particularly appeals to you?
4: Uh, well, I'm, I'm a history graduate, so I feel really, really lucky to be the heritage minister. Also so wonderful is you know you get to jump around the country, jump around different eras, which is great. I'm from the northeast, so you know the first historic sites I visited. I mean, I'm from Whitley Bay, so my uh, nearest English heritage site is Tynemouth Priory, which is you know wonderful. I sort of you know, as a child, you know, from tobogganing down the moat uh, when it snowed to sort of exploring the monastery and the sort of the, the garrison uh, there. I've been delighted to see Seton Delaval Hall, which I've visited as a uh, a child that's been you know restored after the terrible you know fire um, that it that that it suffered you know many years ago and the national trust have done some great work i'm looking forward to going back and seeing the that but yeah, it's a real privilege i've you know been Proud to fly the flag for Northumberland as we celebrated the 1,900th anniversary of Hadrian's Wall, which is, you know, brilliant. It's a, you know, gets so many visitors, not just to the rural bits of the uh, the wall in in the county, but, you know, the bits that run through Newcastle city centre. Um, you, you can go and visit a Roman temple that's just at the end of a residential street uh, in the west end of Newcastle. And that's um you know it's incredible that this history is around us and and the root of the wall goes goes under petrol stations and uh, and and schools and you know th- there's history all around us and I think that that incredible anniversary has been a, a great opportunity to to engage the local community who who just live right next to it.
3: We've talked a bit about funding uh, already in this interview. there's been a lot of news in recent years about funding cuts across the whole whole range of sectors. Does uh, do you think that heritage in Britain is currently underfunded, and what what are your funding plans for the coming years? I suppose.
4: Well, obviously during the pandemic, we stood by our heritage and cultural venues across the country. We provided more than one and a half billion pounds of support through the Cultural Recovery Fund because you know so many of the sites depend on ticket sales and visits, and the, the gift shop always exit through the gift shop. It's uh, such an important thing, and um, of course, suddenly because of COVID, that just stopped overnight. So the government stepped in to, to make sure that all those sites were able to continue and welcome people back as soon as that was that was possible and it's been you know I became minister towards the end of the pandemic so I've been lucky to see how that funding has helped people get back on their feet and but also to see the 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 changed ways of working you know for a time when people weren't able to visit in person it encouraged people to do more digitally to share things with worldwide audiences and that that sort of hybrid uh, model has has continued and again some of the uh, money that was provided through the cultural recovery fund has in, has helped people invest in in that, and that's an important part of sharing our, our heritage with, with with audiences. You know, some of whom may not physically be able uh, to visit sites uh, as easily as as others. One other
3: strand that's been in the media of recent years is the idea that this relationship between heritage and politics. I wanted to get your take on whether you think that the heritage sector and heritage organisations have become too politicised recently.
4: Well, I think, look, um, I'm a history graduate. I, you know, I, I think it's great that people are debating the past and that is a never-ending process. You know, we, the, 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 there's no final word on history. We should always be re-examining and, uh, questioning what has come before. We should be always asking the question, well, whose story isn't being heard here? What, um, what's the counterpart, uh, counterpoint to this, uh, argument? So I think, you know, I, I, the, the, the sort of the, there's a very close overlap between history and politics. Um, you know, history is, is, you know, trying to understand the nature of human relations in different eras and civilizations and sheds important light on current, uh, debates. So I welcome it. I think the important thing is that it's done in a rigorous way, uh, a scholarly way. Museums and galleries and heritage venues should be provoking debate. The, the important thing is that they, Encourage people to ask the questions, and they don't spoon feed them the answers. You, you, you let, let visitors and and the people the people that come come to see uh, your collections let them make their own minds up. Give them the facts, May, maybe even send them away with more questions in their mind. You know, encourage them to do some more research, to pick up a book, to go on Wikipedia, to you know, to join the debate. That's an important part of it. it it's uh, it's a never ending process.
3: Some historians have expressed a view in recent years that the government shouldn't necessarily be wading into the extent that it maybe has into these kind of issues. What would, what would you say in response to those concerns?
4: Well, you know, we, we don't have an official view of, of history. You know, that's not the sort of country we are. We live, uh, we, we have a rigorous and open uh, debate. I think there's a, there's a role for. Government through things like the, the the laws on making sure that we, our national collections are protected. Uh, I think that is important because it, it it ensures that as you know contemporary debates are happening that there is a, a long term view. I think it's important to inject nuance and rigor into the process. It, things are never sort of simple yes or no, good and bad. And one of the things I have tried to do when we've had the debates is is, is put that nuance in because that's the job of a historian it's complex um there are no easy answers and people just want to know that there's that rigor that scholarship that nuance in the debate but you know that's that's also coming across very clearly from public historians from museums and galleries who are trying to do the same the, the same as well so of, often you know frustratingly the headlines that people see you know, covering some of these items make it sound like the debate is being waged in a much more simplistic way than actually it is. Most of the people engaged in it are are you know, are just are trying trying to provoke discussion and inquiry, and that's that's exactly what they should be doing. Mm.
3: Another uh, subject which is incredibly complex, and I suspect needs some of the nuance that you have just talked about, is the is the issue of repatriation. What's your view on? Uh, artefacts that have been originally taken from other cultures elsewhere in the world and are now in this country in the UK?
4: Well I think it's you know it has to be done case by case. Often there's a complex story behind it and you know that provokes lots of questions as it should. We working with the Arts Council we published um, some refreshed guidance for museums and galleries and others who are looking at this question. And again, there's no set outcome. Um, I've spoken to lots of curators and uh, museum directors who have talked me through all the possible outcomes. Sometimes, you know, you can have a a fruitful loan arrangement. Uh, Sometimes you transfer the legal title of an item, but they physically stay uh, in your collection. But the, the, you know, the, the ownership is transferred. Sometimes there are a number of different groups of people who have competing claims on items and it's just very difficult to uh, disaggregate that today, so uh, you sort of reach a, a dead end there. And in some cases, as I say, the uh, the law says uh, a number of our national institutions are you know uh, prohibited in law from deaccessioning their items, but that doesn't stop them lending them uh, as they they generously do to lots of uh, organisations. I think the important thing is that wherever you see an item, and you know, in a sense, the the question of where you see it matters less than what you take from it because so many of our great institutions are visited by people from around the world because of the ability to share things digitally they can share those with international audiences the important thing is that they tell the full story so it's you know. Here's who made it, here's who owned it, here's how it was taken, where it was taken from, how it got here, um, how it's been looked after since the, the the many stages of its history down the centuries should all be there for people to engage with. And I think that's, you know, that's as important really as as where physically items are located.
3: It's a slightly different issue, but related, I suppose. Is there any news of when the buyer tapestry might go on display in the UK?
4: Well, actually, I I had the pleasure of meeting my French counterpart um, on a visit to Paris recently, and we're obviously preparing for the UK-France summit later this month, which Prime Minister and President Macron will go to, and uh, Lucy Fraser, our Secretary of State, will go to as well. That follows on from the, the visit that President Macron made to the UK in was it 2017 when he uh, generously raised the prospect of a loan of the biotapestry. We're still very keen. There are a lot of museums in the UK that are very keen to be part of it. It's a very fragile item, as you uh, might expect. So I think there's some important conservation work that's got to be done. I was explaining to the French government that you know our conservators and curators and uh, tapestry experts here are very happy to help on that while it while it's going on, so that we can work out a, a you know a, a good time for it to to come across the channel and you know it is such a fascinating uh, piece uh, I mean there's you know some uh, some sort of scholarship that suggests it, it was made in England rather than in France the uh, you know this sort of this question of whether the the arrow that uh, you know some famously there was added in uh, later so there's still so much we can learn uh, from it and yeah we're, we're keen to see it come to the UK but I think it needs a bit of uh, love and attention before it can. Finally,
3: you're obviously hugely interested in history. And although I suspect you don't have the time for this right now, if you had to write a history book on an aspect of history, which which would you choose?
4: Well, I have written. It's very, very niche. I wrote A History of the Cambridge Union, the debating society. As I, said, I spent most of my time at university doing debating and student politics and not enough time doing my degree. Uh, so after I graduated, uh, I sort of tried to make amends for that by writing A History of the Cambridge Union. Pretty niche area, but it was really fascinating because it's uh, founded in sort of 1815 and it's been a sort of bastion of free speech but sort of you know, at that time of the Napoleonic Wars of, of a really sort of fascinating so climate uh, for undergraduates to be debating contemporary issues. I uh, for a decade ran the Conservative History Group which as the name suggests is focused on sort of political history on the, the centre-right and have been written lots of pieces uh, uh, and articles along the way. One on a wonderful lady called Mavis Tate, one of the, the early female MPs who was also part of the delegation from Parliament to uh, the Constitution. Concentration camps after the Second World War. There was a cross party, cross house delegation sent to go and report on it. And the horrific scenes that she saw there at the end of the Second World War very sadly contributed to her mental breakdown and uh, that and a divorce it seems led her to take her own life um, just a few years later so it's a really sad story about this um incredible sort of pioneering female MP so I've um, yeah I, I continue to uh, you know I, I, I love um, you know flicking through the dictionary of national biography and Wikipedia and uh, think, thinking of more niche uh, topics to uh, to write maybe maybe after after I'm uh uh, finished in government
0: That was Lord Parkinson the current Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Arts and Heritage in the UK Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley